Well, we've been looking at five psalms of encouragement. Today is week four. Today we're going to look at Psalm 130. So find Psalm 130 this morning. Today's psalm is unique. It's different from any of the other ones we've looked at so far in this series. Like the last two psalms, we've looked at Psalm 40 and Psalm 16. Like those last two, this psalm today is also for people in trouble, but it's a new kind of trouble. We've looked at psalms describing people who are in trouble, but today's psalm talks about a new kind of trouble. This one's for people in a very specific kind of trouble. It's for people like Chuck Colson. Do you know that name, Chuck Colson? Kids are saying, no, I don't know that name. Well, I was reading a little biography of him this week. He's with the Lord now. He died a few years back, back in 2012. Colson was a well-known Christian. He was well-known for many things. He started a, a, a huge nonprofit prison ministry called Prison Fellowship that ministered to prisoners, former prisoners, that worked hard on justice reform. Colson wrote a lot of books, some of them well-known. He wrote like 30 of them. But he's also well-known for something else. He kind of rose to fame for something else. He was the very first person who was put in prison as a result of in the wake of the Watergate scandal. That huge political nightmare that sort of occupied our nation's attention for three entire years back in the 70s, and which led, maybe you remember this, it led to the resignation of the sitting president, Richard Nixon, something that had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. And it, it was right in the middle of this crisis, in the middle of all this, just before he was put in prison, that Colson became a Christian. As he tells the story, a business contact invited him over and shared the gospel with him, like had him reading out of Lewis's Mere Christianity, had him turn to several passages in the Bible, gave him the full thing, told him all about what Jesus had done for him. And Colson says he listened patiently. At times he felt something and stirring in his heart, particularly when the friend prayed for him, but he didn't respond. He left the house, he got in his car, and then it happened. As he describes it, all of a sudden the weight of what he had just heard just descended on him, just fell on him, and he wept. Like so much crying that he had to stop driving and pull off to the side of the road. Here's this tough Washington insider, former Marine, once known as Nixon's evil genius. There he is weeping right in his car. He wept over who he had become. He wept over what he had done. He describes himself as having a heart full of pride. He wept over this, and he called out to God. You know, Psalm 130 is for people like that. People who are in trouble, but not just in trouble. It's for people in a pit of trouble that they've dug for themselves. It's for people who are in pits of trouble and they find themselves holding the shovel. That's what makes this psalm unique in our series. It's for people in trouble because of their own sin. It's a song for sinners. Chuck Colson could have written our psalm. He didn't, but he could have. And maybe you could have too. Maybe as you hear it today, you say, I could have written that. 
Maybe you've come in here today and there's like fresh dirt on your shovel. You, you come in here today and you're kind of looking up at the rim, at the edge of a pit that you've dug for yourself. You're trapped. You're tangled up in sin. You're wishing you weren't. And you're desperate to be free. Maybe, maybe you come in here today and you're weighed down by something else. It's not fresh sins, but it's past ones. Past sins that you've left behind, you've asked forgiveness for them, you've even forsaken them, but you've not forgotten them. Past sins whose consequences, like scars, they linger on. Fresh reminders of a past that you would really, really like to forget. I tell you what, this is a special psalm for people just like you. It's a special psalm for you, and it's full of encouragement. It's a special psalm for people who are deep in sin or they're dogged, they're hounded by shame. But as you'd expect, this psalm, like all of the psalms, they've got encouragement to spare. They've got encouragement for all sinners. That's like all of us. And we won't want to miss it. I trust you found Psalm 130. Let's go ahead and read it this morning. Psalm 130. This is the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we need your help this morning. We want to hear from you. Some of us are desperate for a word from you this morning. A word just like this. Come in here in the depths. Feeling the guilt, the shame. Feeling the fear. Feeling entrapped by things we've done. It's, it's, it's amazing that we've even come in here today. So we call out to you, God. Be merciful to us. Give us words of hope. Give us words of encouragement. Stand us back on our feet. Tell us what's true about you. Father, sustain us with your word this morning, we pray. You must do that. That's why we've come. Give me grace. Give me grace to speak Clearly, your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a song for sinners. It's a song for sinners, and the song has three stanzas, three verses. Each can be summarized, captured. Each can be remembered by one word. These are words that you'll want to treasure. You'll want to treasure them, and also write them down. So I'm going to give them to you. Write these down. First, mercy. 
Song can be summarized by three words, each of the stanzas, stanzas first, mercy. Second, forgiveness. And third, redemption. Those are the three stanzas. First, mercy, then forgiveness, then redemption. Let's look at each. First, mercy. Mercy. This is the first verse of the song. We find it in verses 1 and 2, and it is full. It's brimming with. It's overflowing with urgency. Listen again to what the psalmist says. This is verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Can you kind of hear his urgency? He's in the depths. He's in the sea. He's drowning. Think Jonah, tossed headlong into the sea, headed down to a watery grave. And from there, between the kind of crashing of the waves, the psalmist, he cries out to the Lord. He cries. It's no casual request. In fact, notice how his request is described at the end of verse 2. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Please, it's plural. It's not a casual request, nor is it a passing request. This man is desperate. He's feeling urgent. My daughter taught me something this week. She taught me some Morse code. She had learned it as she was hanging out with a friend and she came home. She said, Daddy, can I teach you this? I said, of course. She tried with her flashlight, but its batteries had died probably because she had been practicing like a lot. So instead, and I thought this was really cute. I'm her dad. She used her eyelids. How great is that? So she did three short blinks. Then she did three longer blinks, followed by three short ones. Three short, three long, three short. Do you know what that stands for? It's SOS. She taught me SOS and Morse code. It's the signal that distressed sailors and other people would send out calling out for help. And it's exactly what this psalmist is doing in the first stanza. The first stanza is the psalmist SOS. Except he's not just asking for help. He's not just asking for help. He's asking for mercy. That is the last and most important word of this first part of the song. Mercy. Look at the end of verse 2. Make sure your eyes see it. The distressed sinner cries out from the depths for mercy, for undeserved kindness. That's what mercy is. He's in trouble. He's in trouble of his own making, and he knows it. And he knows that if he's going to be saved, if he's going to be freed, if he's going to get rescued, he'll need somebody to show him mercy. And he knows just whom to ask. Notice verse 1. He knows exactly whom to go to. Verse 1. It's the only word in all caps. It may be hard to see because they're small caps, but all caps. Look at that verse 1. I, I promise you it's there. It says, Lord. Do you see that? L in caps and the O-R-D in caps. That's a translation of God's covenant name, Yahweh. The psalmist knows who he can go to for mercy. He knows if he's going to receive mercy, he can go to Yahweh, the one and only true God. The one who tells us, like right at the beginning of the Bible, just after he had rescued Israel from another pit, slavery in Egypt, this God tells us this. This is Exodus 34, 6. This is how he describes himself. 
The Lord, the Lord. That's how it starts. Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The verse goes on, but did you notice how it starts? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. A God full of mercy. Look, maybe you've made a mess of things and you're stuck. You feel stuck, trapped. You're, you're in the depths. When we read that this morning, you immediately thought, that is me. You're in the depths and you know it and you know what you need. Not what you deserve, but you know what you need. What you need is mercy. You need just what the psalmist needs. And he's telling us that God is full of this. He's merciful. So cry out to him today. This God who we worship is full of mercy. Let this song, let this stanza, in fact, you could do it right now in your heart, cry out to God for mercy. Let it be your song this morning. You know, my dad's a preacher. He's a professor of the Old and New Testaments by trade. He's been doing that for four decades, but he's a weakened preacher. And growing up, he would take my brother and he'd take me on preaching excursions with him. He'd go to churches pastored most often by either former students or current students. And he'd always kind of sit us in the front row so that we'd behave. And I remember, besides that, is we'd often in these churches, we'd sing the really old hymns. At least to a young boy, the hymns seemed really old. And one of them went like this. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. You know this one. Love lifted me, mercy lifted me, the chorus goes on to say. If that's you, if that's you this morning, if you feel deeply stained within, it's hard for you to even maybe say those words about how you feel, but if that's what it is, you feel deeply stained within, feeling like you're sinking to rise no more, then you have got to do exactly what the psalmist does. You've got to do this. You've got to cry out, to the master of the sea. In his mercy, he will save you. All right, that's the first stanza of this song for sinners. Stanza two, forgiveness. Mercy, now forgiveness. Second verse. We find this one in verses three and four. We find this second stanza of the song in verses three and four, and it begins with this bracing reality. Look at verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Do you you hear what he's saying? If God marked, if he kept track of and then held you to account for all of your sins. Think about that. Kept track of and then held you account for all of your sins. Nobody could stand. We would all drown instead, wouldn't we? We deserve to drown. It's what our iniquities, it's what our sins deserve. Justice demands that we drown. 
Justice demands, don't miss this, justice demands that we get exactly what we deserve. You see, God created us and he created this world. And he's shown us, and more than shown us, he's told us in his word, in our consciences. He's told us in this world that he's made, he's told us the good and wise way to live and to be in this world. That is why every sin at its root is really an act of rebellion. God says, do this. God says, be like this. God says, this is a good way. And when we sin, we say, I know better than God knows. Come on. Come on, I know better. Or worse, we just say, who cares what God says? And the right thing for God to do, what's the right thing for God to do in a situation like that? For the one who created us and created this world, the right thing, the just thing, would be for him to remove people like that from his world. What did he do to Adam and Eve when they did that? He removed them right from his world, right from his presence. He said, you're now out of the Garden of Eden. The right thing, the just thing for God to do is to remove people like that from his world. They don't belong. They deserve to be punished. We deserve to be punished. All of us do because we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. That's what the psalmist tells us here in verse 4. If God kept track of sins... If he kept a ledger, nobody could stand. Nobody could stand in judgment. Everybody would be declared guilty. All of us. We'd all be punished. It's no wonder then that the drowning sinner calls out for what? He's calling out for mercy. He knows what he needs. He's calling out for mercy. And notice what he finds. Verse 4. In fact, look at the very first word of verse 4. It's like reverberating with good news. It's like kind of you can feel it. It's resonating, that very first word, but. If God would keep track of our sins, nobody could stand. And then we meet this wonderful little word that's just brimming with anticipation, but. Maybe you remember, it was like the lowest point in Romans. We'd been nearly three chapters in. Remember how we started the book of Romans? It's how Romans starts. We had, I think, four sermons consecutively on sin. You're a sinner, week one. Week two, don't, don't forget, you're a sinner. Week three, hey, everybody's a sinner. Week four, nobody's accepted. Remember this? That's how Romans starts. After nearly three chapters spent showing that everybody's a sinner, we finally get to Romans 3.21. Three chapters really as doom and gloomy as you could find, and then finally we got a ray of light. Paul says this, Romans 3.21. This is how he starts. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And that righteousness, that exoneration, that acquittal, that you're not guilty, that thing is available freely as a gift. That's how Romans 3.21 went on to say. And I can almost picture Paul He's got his Old Testament scroll kind of open before him. He's in the back of his shop in Corinth. That's where he wrote Romans. I can almost picture him looking at that Old Testament scroll. Maybe it's even Psalm 130 and reflecting on that as he writes those wonderful words to us in Romans 3.21. In fact, notice the rest of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Listen to that. But with you, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. feared. Forgiveness. It's right there, right there in verse 4. 
This is a song about mercy. It's also a song about forgiveness. In fact, it's a song about mercy that expresses itself and that leads to, that shows forgiveness. Mercy that expresses itself in God's forgiveness. The psalmist knows something that you've got to know, and it's explosive. God doesn't treat you, God doesn't treat us like we deserve. That's an explosive truth. God, he doesn't treat you like you deserve. We deserve justice. We deserve to drown in the depths. We deserve to stay there, but instead we get mercy. How great is that? Honestly, how great is that? You deserve to drown, and instead of drowning, you get something you don't deserve. You get mercy. How great is God? He doesn't give us what we deserve. Seriously, seriously. Find another God like that out in the world. I challenge you. Find another God like that. In fact, the Bible makes the same challenge. The Bible gives it, it, it the same challenge to us. It asks in one place, who is a God like you? The Bible asks that question. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who, who's a God that forgives the sins of his people? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. That's Micah 7.18. Who is a God like our God? The answer is there's nobody like him. There's nobody like God. Which is, in fact, precisely why God forgives. That's why he forgives. He wants to highlight his uniqueness. That's why God does it. Yes, he has compassion on you, but he does it even more than that because he wants to highlight his uniqueness. He wants to highlight his glory. His mercy makes him stand out. It shows his glory. Look again at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Notice that. So that. For the purpose of what? So that you may be feared. God's mercy. He shows mercy. He forgives because he wants to be feared. And don't get lost in that word feared. That's a full word in the Old Testament that speaks of God being honored. God being adored. God being revered. It speaks of God being worshipped. Here's what the psalmist is telling us. The psalmist is telling us that God is committed to showing mercy because God is committed to being worshipped. Do you see that? That's what the psalmist is telling us. God is committed to showing mercy because when he shows mercy, he's worshipped and God is committed to being worshipped. He's committed to being worshipped as the one and only merciful God. He wants that to be spread across the sky. You alone are the one and only merciful God. With you there is forgiveness that everybody, he wants everybody to know that he alone is the merciful God. You could put it like this. God delights in showing mercy because mercy leads to delight in God. God delights in showing mercy because mercy leads to delight in God. So if you're weighed down with sin this morning, if you come in and you're feeling the weight, shame, guilt, hear the psalmist, hear him say this, there is forgiveness with God. In fact, it's better than that. God's name, his fame, his reputation, his glory, it's tied to, it's bound up with, it's hitched to his showing mercy to repentant sinners. When he does that, he gets glory and he delights in it. 
Let your heart cling to that this morning. Let it cling to that. Reach out and grab that truth. God delights in showing mercy. He will make his name worshipped. He delights in that. Let God's commitment to showing mercy, let it fuel your hope. Let it fuel your cry this morning. Sing this song to God. Cry out to him. He loves to show mercy. He loves to express that mercy and forgiveness. All right, one more thing before we look at the last stanza, the last verse of our song. One more thing before we move on. God's forgiveness, it creates a dilemma. You kind of feel it already? Maybe you do. It creates a dilemma because the Bible tells us like everywhere that God is full of mercy. Page after page it says that. But it also says that God is a God of justice. Like on page after page after page. How does it work? How can God be both merciful and just? You see the problem, right? If God is merciful, who, what about all those sins? You don't want to judge sweeping sins and infractions and criminal offenses under the rug. What happens to those? I like mercy, but I also want justice. And God says he does both. How can they both be true? Don't you kind of have to choose? Well, this is where the New Testament goes beyond our psalm. The New Testament... God's revelation, it completes the Old Testament where our psalm is found. It gives us more information. It fills in gaps. It fills in gaps like the gap between God's justice in verse 3 and God's mercy in verse 4. How do you bridge that gap? Well, Paul answers this question in Romans 3. Listen to Romans 3.23. Follow along. It's Paul. he's, He's making an argument here for... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's in the depths. God knows that. He's marked those iniquities. All have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. And, it's incredible, and are justified. All have sinned and are justified, declared to be innocent. How? This is Romans 3.23. By His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by Jesus' blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his right and just character. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he's just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see it. He's still just, and he's able to justify, declare you. I, I hope you realize this. You don't deserve to be declared innocent. God is just, and at the same time, he declares you to be innocent. The Bible tells us here that God is able to be merciful and just at the same time. He's able to forgive sin and punish sin at the same time. How? The answer is Jesus. Did you see it? It's Jesus. He gave Jesus the justice our sins deserved, and he gives us the mercy and the grace that we need. Jesus gets our justice. He gets it. Jesus gets the justice we deserve. We get the God's mercy that we need. Jesus got our justice so that when we're in the depths and we call out to God, we can receive mercy. Jesus' death, listen to this, Jesus' death, it shows us just how serious God is about justice. Jesus' death, it shows you 
God takes justice absolutely seriously. It's not just going to sweep our faults under the rug. Jesus shows us how seriously God takes justice. He must mark iniquities. It's true, but Jesus' death also shows us just how serious God is about mercy. God is so serious about mercy that he sacrificed his one and only son so that he could provide that mercy for us. All right, that's the second stanza of our song this morning. We've looked at the first stanza, mercy, second stanza, forgiveness, finally. Third stanza, redemption. Redemption. We find this one in verses 5 to 8. And and, and in fact, everything's been building for this. Everything's been building towards this climactic moment. You know, scholars, biblical scholars that think about the Psalms a lot, they think that Israel probably sang this psalm as people returned to Jerusalem, as they ascended up to Jerusalem for one of the yearly festivals. Three times a year, there were pilgrimage feasts, big celebrations, where people, Jewish people, Israelites from all over would ascend. They would go up to Jerusalem and celebrate. They would, they would sing this song, the scholars tell us, as they ascended. Notice the very, you see the little title at the beginning of the psalm? A song of ascents. You see that? They, they would sing it as they ascended. Jerusalem's on a hill. It's a city on a hill, literally. It's set on five hills. And you had to climb, you had to ascend to get there. But I suggest that the song is a song of ascents in another way too. This is what I mean. It begins, doesn't it, really, really low. Where does it begin in verse 1? You're in the ocean of despair. You're in the depths. And then it ascends, it ends, right here in this last stanza, high up on a mountain. High up on Redemption Mountain. That's where it ends. You ascend all the way up there. This third verse tells us something really important about sin. It tells us that God's mercy not only brings forgiveness, it not only brings forgiveness from sin, but it brings freedom from sin's presence. Not only forgiveness from sin, but it brings, God's mercy brings freedom from sin's actual presence, full in final redemption. I talked about this earlier. Perhaps your despair when you come in to a place like this this morning isn't so much over present sins. It's not so much over what happened this last week. It's not so much over present sins, but it's the effects of past ones. You've got scars. Maybe literally you have scars on your body. Consequences. Shadows from your past that you just simply can't shake. The psalmist, he comes along and he tells you a fantastic truth. Your past, it won't follow you into heaven. Your past, it won't follow you into heaven. It may follow you now, but it's not going to follow you there. It, it, It can't. There will be no need of mercy When God's redemption is complete, no need for it. You and I will be made absolutely sinless. No more cries for help once we make it to the new creation, this this beautiful new world that Jesus will bring when he returns. On that day, look at verse 8, on that day God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
He will redeem Israel, his people, believers, those united to Jesus, Christians. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Sins, they can be forgiven now. On that day, they'll be forsaken. They'll be removed. Every desire to sin will be stopped. I mean, think about that. Every desire to sin will be absolutely stopped. Every effect of sin will be erased. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In fact, isn't that word all super great? All of them. I had this picture that some of us want to think of that all. Maybe it's like a little hammock. can kind of crawl up into it and just swing softly for a while. He's going to redeem you from all your iniquities, every single one of them. Removed every last trace. Notice how the psalmist describes this future redemption. Look at verse 7. He says, With him, with our merciful God, or as he says here in verse 7, with our steadfastly loving God, with him there is, end of verse 7, in fact, you'll want to circle these words, highlight them, write them in the, this again, something you need to mark up. Put this in the flyleaf of your Bible. End of verse 7. With God there is plentiful redemption. What a great adjective. Plentiful. Plentiful redemption. It's not going to run out. There's enough to go around, enough to cover and expunge and remove every stain of sin, every scar removed, every lingering consequence taken away, every trace, every shadow, totally and finally and fully done away with. The redemption's not going to run out. It won't run dry because it's plentiful. Redemption, that's the song's final stanza, redemption. And it's yet to come. It's sure. You can be confident in it. It's, It's yet to come. It's just in the future. So we wait. We long. We hope for it. We wait for it. We long for it. We hope for it which is precisely what the psalmist does and what he encourages us to do. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, his promise of full redemption, in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. Do you get his point? He says it four times. He's waiting, he's hoping, he's clinging to something that he knows to be true. But he's not finished. In fact, he gives us this wonderful picture in verse 6 of that final day. Listen to verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord, he says, more than, more than watchmen for the morning. And in case you missed it, he says it again. More than watchmen for the morning. He strains He strains his eyes to see the rays, the the fresh glimpse of that new day, the orange and yellow and red hues of the sunrise on the day of redemption. It's coming. Folks, the sun always rises. So in the dark, in the dark, before dawn, he waits for the morning. And he calls us to do the same. Look at verse 7. He says, O Israel... We could say, O crossway, O crossway, hope in the Lord, because morning is coming. Full and final redemption, 
that's literally just over the horizon. All right, let me end with this. Let me end with this. If you need mercy, look, if you need forgiveness, if your heart, if it's longing for redemption, you know what I mean. You, you feel it deep inside of you. I need that. I hear that word mercy. That's what I need. Forgiveness, yes, that's for me. I need that. I need some forgiveness. Redemption, you mean full, plentiful redemption? I'll take that too. If that's you this morning, the song is for you. This is your song to sing. It's yours to sing, to sing it out. God is full of mercy. With him there is forgiveness. With him there is plentiful redemption. And he's shown you just how committed he is to mercy by what he's done by sacrificing Jesus. So bring your sin to him today. Bring your sin to him. Every last bit. Don't leave any of it behind. Bring it all to Jesus. Every last trace. Bring it to him. Cry out to him today and he will help you. He will lift you up so that you can stand, put you back on your feet, and he'll give you strength. He'll put it deep in your heart. He'll give you strength. He'll give you hope to wait for that glorious morning to come. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we need you. What a beautiful piece of the Bible this is. Soul-relieving truth. We don't have to labor under the burden of our sins one second longer. We can cry out to you for mercy. That's how you've described yourself. You are a God full of mercy. You love to show mercy. It makes your name great. You're committed to it. Father, give us, give us confidence. Give us rest in your mercy and your forgiveness. Make our hearts swell with anticipation for the day when all all of the lingering consequences of our sins will be forever removed because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.